Let us pray. Chatter the silence, mighty God, with your glad and glorious greetings. Banish all our fears and give us faith in Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. If there is anything said from this pulpit that is against your will, let it come to naught and do no harm. But if there is anything said from this pulpit that is according to your will, let it be heard as if sung by the voice of angels, that hearing we might believe and believing obey. Amen. We have a cookie jar in my house. I can't remember the last time it had cookies in it, though. <laughs> Not because we've eaten them all. I just can't remember the last time it had cookies in it. It's dog-shaped. It's ceramic. It's painted white with black spots. So maybe it's a Dalmatian. It holds an oversized bone in its mouth and it has a painted red collar. The cookie jar is fully functional. You open it right there at the collar. That's where you access the cookies. Yes, the black spots have faded a bit and the paint has crackled around its mouth but it's fully functional, and yet it lives in a cabinet over the refrigerator. Who uses that cabinet? No one. It's relegated there, and its only companions are a glass pitcher that we sometimes use for iced tea and a few rolls of streamers that we have left Lucy's last birthday party. It's not like we don't have room for this cookie jar. Our sideboards, like yours, I'm sure, are littered with all kinds of kitchen paraphernalia that fall beneath the priority of having a cookie jar. I'm sure that the banana bowl or the bread basket would be happy to take a demotion to the pantry if it meant the cookie jar could have a place. But it remains in that far-off, never-used cabinet above the refrigerator. And what with our four kids and my sweet tooth, that is no place for a cookie jar. I'll be honest, sometimes I forget it's even there. That's just not where cookie jars belong. Amen? Okay. <laughs> cookie jars belong in the center of the kitchen. Am I right? Yes. They're meant to be visited on your way into the house. And then again on your way out, as you say, I'll take one or two for the road. They should be handy enough to make a pilgrimage during a commercial break 
or to be able to sneak one when the cookie police aren't watching. Looking at you. <laughs> If a house was a wheel, a cookie jar would be the hub. Everything coming into and out, away from the cookie jar. But that is not how it is with my cookie jar. It's supposed to be in the center of things. Sometimes we forget what's supposed to be in the center of things. And they get relegated to a kitchen cabinet that never gets opened. That's how it was for the people of God when we meet them today as Moses gathers them up at Beth Peor, east of the Jordan. Here in Deuteronomy, we read about how what was supposed to be, what was intended to be, what was designed to be right there in the center of their lives while it had been relegated to an oft, far-off place in the kitchen. You might remember the story of Moses. I hope you do remember the story of Moses. He was born at a time when the Pharaoh was having all of the, the male children, the Hebrew children, killed. And he was saved by his handmaiden and his mother. And he was put in a basket in the Nile and floated down the Nile. By the way, the Hebrew there for basket is the same as ark. So like Noah, he was delivered in an ark. What God does, he connects these dots for us to remind us that he's always making a way where there seems like there is no way. And where does he go? He finds his way in this ark, in this basket, into the hands of Pharaoh's daughter. And as such, Moses grows up as royalty. As an adult, though, he has to flee Egypt for Midian because Moses kills an Egyptian that he sees beating on an Israelite and then he buries that Egyptian in the sand. And so he runs off to Midian where he meets a man named Jethro and he marries Jethro's daughter and he becomes a shepherd for Jethro's flock. And it's while he's a shepherd for these flocks that he meets God in a burning bush on the backside of Mount Horeb. And what does God tell him? He says, you go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Many of us know that story of Moses. We're taught that story in our Sunday school classes. We're also taught about the Red Sea. We're taught about how he and the community ate manna from heaven. We are taught about the Ten Commandments and Sinai. But there's a lot more about Moses that we don't often know as much about. You see, because Moses journeyed with the Israelite people for 40 years in the wilderness. And the Bible, it tells us about two of those years. 
But then for the other 38 years, the Bible goes silent. So what happens to Moses and the community during those 38 years? We can only imagine. But we do know about the trajectory. See, in those first two years, we learn about this incident with the golden calf. And we also learn that in those two years, there was such a culture of complaining in the community that we have a name for it. It's called the murmuring tradition. Some churches actually also have a murmuring tradition. Don't they, Fernando? Not this church, but other churches. And so if this was the trajectory that the church was on, who knows where they were another 38 years later. But we do know that when Moses gathers up this community at Beth Peor, east of the Jordan, he's in his old age, this will be the place of his burial, And what he communicates to them is the same thing that was communicated to their forefathers and foremothers at Mount Sinai 40 years earlier. See, in Deuteronomy 5, we are given the Ten Commandments for the second time in the Bible. And when he offers the Ten Commandments to this generation of people, he wants them to be sure that they know that he's not reminding them of what God has told their parents. He's reminding them that they were in fact there too. That this covenant, these commandments, are not for someone else. They're for you. This covenant with God was not just made at Sinai. You were also there. You are part of that community. That's what he wants them to know. And I think that's what Deuteronomy wants all of us to know. Know where you've been. Not where someone else has been. Know where you've been. Know what God has promised, not just to that community at Sinai, but promised you. Know what that asks of you, not some other community, but actually asks of you. And hold on to it with everything that you've got. That's what's going on in Deuteronomy 6. Know where you've been. Know what God has promised you. Know what that asks of you. And hold on to it with everything that you've got. And he gets really specific about what that looks like, doesn't he? If you listen to the text, he says, These teachings are yours. Impress them on your children. Talk about them at home and when you walk on the road, when you lie down and when you get up. He says, tie them as symbols on your hands. I have a friend who set out to preach on this text, and he told me about the week before he preached it, he said, I actually wrote the words, love God, on my hands. He took the text literally and wrote the words, love God, on his hands. He said, Nate, you wouldn't believe what it's like to wake up in the morning and see the words, love God, on your hands. What it's like to interact with your spouse And have that word, love God, on your hands. 
to set the priority of your day, to, to make decisions for your finances. Love God. It changes everything. Which is why I think Moses was so intent that they tie them as a symbol on their hands. They're supposed to be right there in the center of their lives, this, this covenant. Changes everything. What are you holding on to these days? If you were going to write something on your hand, the thing that you're really holding on to, what would it be? What are you holding on to these days? I think this is a good place to start our Days of Our Lives sermon series where we're examining the episodes of faith in our church's lifetime. What are you holding on to these days? Because in the 1940s post-war America, this was the question being asked. Is there anything we can hold on to? I mean, can we hold on to the church anymore? Remember from our series on Bonhoeffer's life together, we were reminded that the Nazi threat actually disestablished the church because they co-opted the church into their horrific movement. And so churches, theologians, and practitioners had the work of reestablishing the church as something to hold on to as their, as their enterprise. And this is why you see apologists like C.S. Lewis rising in influence and why we're studying him today in adult ministry. He was giving people in his doctrine, he was giving people a way of looking at God where they could hold on to him again. It's also what made Colonel George's gift of this campus so timely in that 1940s era. He, he wrote, I have always deeply believed that the place of worship of our deity should be noble and inspiring in its conception and character. That to enter into its holy atmosphere, we felt the very presence of our God, our loving Heavenly Father, and where alone and without word of priest or chant of song, one could quietly and deeply sense the very presence of his God. And while in silent prayer, petitioning for grace and expressing thanksgiving for blessing, he may feel the very spiritual presence of God the Father. In the 1940s, when Colonel George dreamt up the idea of this place. He had the sense that the community needed something to hold on to. That when people came here, this place might remind them to know where they've been. Know what God has promised. Know what that asks of you and to hold on to it with everything that we've got. Many of us need to hear that as much now as they did in the 1940s and as they did when Moses spoke to that generation after Mount Sinai. Know where you've been. Know what God has promised. Know what that asks of you and hold on to it with everything that you've got. 
What are you holding on to these days? What are you holding on to these days? Are you here to learn and relearn how to hold on? Are you here because you need someone, some church, to give you something to hold on to? My grandmother's house gave that to me, something to hold on to. Maybe you had a grandmother like that, one whose house had given you something to hold on to. It did, her house did smell like an ashtray, I will readily admit that. And she used way too many styrofoam cups. But it was always warm. There was always laughter. She was always strong for us. And the cookie jar was always full. Every time we would enter that house, we'd go straight to the cookie jar. And there in that jar, we'd find all the chocolate chip treats, or the peanut butter ones. We'd hit it on the way in and then on the way out, saying, I'll take one or two for the road. When my grandmother died a few years ago, she didn't have much. And when my mother cleaned out her house, she said, Is there anything you'd like to have? And I said, Yeah, just one thing. The cookie jar. The one with the black spots and the red collar. I just wanted that to hold on to. If you've ever lost someone, you know how important it is to have something to hold on to. Some thing, some memory, some story, something to hold on to. What are you holding on to these days? Are you here because you need to be reminded that this house gives you something to hold on to? That you have an inheritance not meant to be hidden away, but meant to be central in your life. Are you here in hopes that maybe by being here, this place and these people will help you to hold on to God with your hands? Or are you here 
like many of us are here, because you need to be reminded that God is holding on to you. Because, see, in Jesus, God has hands. And in the book of Isaiah, we are reminded that our names are written on his hands. And in the Gospel of John, we're reminded that we will never be snatched away from those same hands. And in the book of Revelation, we're told that he holds all the stars in those same hands and in every single gospel. We're told about how he stretched out those hands so that we would never be put on a shelf. Stretching out those hands in that one most defining moment in all human history. That was God's way of saying, if this is what I have to do to get it through to you, And I am never going to let go. Then so be it. What are you holding on to these days? Hold on to that. Amen.